listeners, and welcome to another episode of Film is Lit, the podcast where we compare and contrast a film or television adaptation of a book. I'm your host, Laura, the book expert. And I'm Danny, the self-appointed film expert, pronouns he, him. Pronouns she, her. Amen. We are coming in hot in season five. We've just had banger after banger. This is episode three. And yeah, coming hot off the tails of our episode on False Positive. We love that movie. Am I right? That's me throwing up in the background. It's funny. We hated False Positive so much that we're actually on a mission to write our own adaptation of Rosemary's Rosemary's Baby. Baby, A modern adaptation. We're in the thick of that now. That's been pretty fun. It's fitting because this movie, you could say, and the book, is kind of a loose, not loose, it's a pretty direct um, adaptation of Rear Window. Is it a successful one? No. No. (laughs) Um, Unfortunately, it's not. And I just want to say this right at the top of the episode. We are not haters. The last thing we... We're trolls. Right, exactly. We're not haters or trolls. We want movies and books to surprise us. Obviously, we want movies and books to be good as well. We went into Woman in the Window knowing its reputation of it being bad (laughs) and it being delayed uh, for three years, not because of COVID, um, because (laughs) of reshoots and poor test screenings. We wanted this movie to surprise us and unfortunately it did not we're jumping on the bandwagon of everyone saying um that this movie is a train wreck because it is it gives us no pleasure to hate on a story but that's what we're going to be doing here and we try i feel like we're pretty fair when we put down a source material or an adaptation of the source material we try to be very technical about what didn't work we try not to just be totally opinion based like, oh, I just didn't like that. You yeah. know, we try to be technical to be fair, but sometimes it is kind of fun to dump on a film, and I think we're going to have some fun well, <laughs> with this yeah. book and the movie. We're going to have some fun, but it's also disappointing because yeah. this is clearly an instance of a lot of talented people in front of and behind the camera yeah. trying to put forth an effort mid-production to fix a screenplay and a movie that's clearly a mess. Mm-hmm. They tried. Yeah. So we should give them a medal for trying. Yeah. Unfortunately, it's just a disaster. Yeah. And whether that's a result of the studio scrambling after poor test screenings and producing these reshoots that are just awful, or or if the movie was broken to begin with. And I want to add, the book is a piece of garbage. Right. Um, they did not start with... The, they could only go down, unfortunately. There was just, there's not enough quality to take out of the source material that it just, yeah, I think it started there with poor source material. I feel like, is that a hot take that the book isn't good? Because I know it's very, it was very not popular. really. It... Okay, so this, to me, I feel like this is very similar to what happened to Where'd You Go, Bernadette? Mm-hmm. Where, like, books top the New York Times bestseller list very easily. Mm-hmm. That benchmark is so low that you can slap that on the cover of a book and and a lot of people will go ahead and, you know, pick these kinds of books up for, for example, book clubs or, you know, reading groups and whatever. 
So I, I kind of feel like it becomes a frenzy and, and it becomes so popular that people just like don't do a close reading. Cause I don't know, I guess a lot of novels, like people don't walk into a lot of novels thinking about the kinds of things that we think about. Cause we do have a podcast. Yeah. So I think like, unfortunately thrillers get a lot of attention because of the twists and I don't know. I, I'm just not sure that people go into thrillers looking for like good literature. Mm -hmm. So maybe that's why it became fairly popular. But on a closer read, if you read this twice, it just falls apart. It's just, it's so easy to pull apart. And then, of course, there's a backstory about the author that I'll go into a little bit. But there just is not, even compared, and I mean, this book is constantly compared to Girl on the Train and Gone Girl. Yeah. And it doesn't come anywhere near the quality of those two. Yeah. I, and I we didn't like Girl on the Train, so... Yeah. Love Gone Girl, though. If you haven't... Yeah, of course. Yeah, listen to Love our episode on Gone Girl. That was season one. Yeah. We covered that all the way a year ago. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, so... So, anyways, yeah, I think it, it has been popular, but thriller is kind of... That's kind of, unfortunately, why a lot of thrillers and mystery fiction is considered pulpy. Yeah. Because the build-up to the big twist, which is expected mm -hmm. by the genre, just, it's easy to kind of, like, throw twists in with not, without a lot of motive. Mm, sure. And this is a huge example of a failed thriller. Yeah. An example of a series that does that pulpy thriller genre very well is uh, Mayor of Easttown, which just Ooh. came out on HBO Max. I just finished it. On the surface level, the actual detective story is pretty pulpy and not trashy, but it's kind of like elevated fast food, if you could say. Sure. That that it's nothing really new in terms of like thriller plots and murder mysteries, but under the surface it, it is much more of a character study of Mayor, Kate Winslet's character, and the other people in the town. A deep, deep story about dealing with loss, mm -hmm. about persevering through trauma, about overcoming uh, depression and trauma. It is just, it, so it has the, it's the best of both worlds. Just like Gone Girl, it is on one hand kind of fast food cinema that's just taps into that, you know, caveman or woman <laughs> part of your brain that just wants to see, you know, elevated murder mysteries. Yeah. But at the same time, it's much more deeper than that. And it really delves into like human psychology so cave person yes <laughs> thank you for Throw correcting me out. i'm canceled um yeah so that's an example of a great thriller that yeah delivers both entertainment but also deep character study this is just unfortunately pure trash um, yeah yeah and and you know i've read a lot of thrillers i'm not adverse to go walking into those pulpy books you know and and you get to the end of the book and you're like ah that's just that was dumb but yeah. i got scared the night i read the twist so like you know it was kind of worth it but this there's just nothing there's nothing to dig your teeth into so yeah and at the end of the day it's just a remake of Rear Window. Yeah. It, I can't say it's really ripping off Rear Window because the very first frame of the movie they show uh, Rear Window on a TV is kind of an homage to to the movie and it's like okay but if you're gonna do Rear Window why 
why not change a few th- like this is pretty much the same well, story we, we talked about this same concept in the false positive episode because there's no official homage to the movie rear window it's never explicitly laid out that this is a reinterpretation but right. It, well, the very first frame of Women in the Window is a TV screen of Rear Window uh, of right. the movie. Right, and also I was going to point out that the thumbnail on Netflix was the main character, Doctor Fox, with a telephoto lens, which is also like Rear Window. But, oh yeah, yeah. But I'm saying that there's nothing. This movie doesn't bring anything new to the rear window story yeah like it could have reinterpreted that as a female instead of james stewart jimmy stewart playing the man but like there's nothing to reinterpret other than there's like a gender swap right so it's kind of all surface level Mm -hmm. reinterpretation i guess yes yeah so (laughs) let's do a brief synopsis and then we'll get into our personal journeys with the story Yeah, so the movie is about Anna Fox, Dr. Anna Fox, played by the wonderful Amy Adams, one of my favorite actors, um, who's having a tough 2021. She had this movie come out and Hillbilly Elegy come out, which was also critically panned, absolutely reviled. Yeah. Um, Yeah. It came out on Netflix, too. Yep. (laughs) So two Netflix movies, two critically panned movies having a tough year amy adams but she's one of our best (laughs) arrival yes one of our favorite movies yep and yeah so dr anna fox is agoraphobic so she's afraid to go outside and she witnesses a murder across the street from her in the um, adjacent brownstone Mm -hmm. and the murder is of who she thinks is Jane Russell. Mm-hmm. Full spoilers. Did I say? Not yet, but okay. Full can now. full spoilers. Yeah. Is about the murder of who she thinks is Jane Russell, played by uh, Julianne Moore, Boston University alum. Go Terriers! Nice. <laughs> and yeah, then she gets gaslit by these detectives and her next door neighbor, the husband, Alistair Russell, played by Gary Oldman. Love Gary Oldman, who says, "You did not." meet my wife my wife is alive and then we see that it's jennifer jason lee who we in the past have not loved we've her. been we've been a little harsh on her and yeah. she's just not not our tempo mm-hmm. to quote whiplash we don't really like i'm sure she's a great person uh, yeah. in real life but we're not really but a fan roles for us are yeah. yeah she also has two lines in this movie so and a lot of staring into the distance yeah and- so she could have been played by anyone really it's a nothing role <laughs> yeah and yeah, they're like, you haven't met my wife. Jane Russell is alive. And Anna Fox is just like, what the heck? I saw someone die. I saw Julianne Moore die and she's Jane Russell. So what's going on here? Mm-hmm. And the plot unravels from there. It's a murder mystery. Mm-hmm. And it takes place mostly in Amy Adams's apartment, which is in New York. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's that's the movie. It's, <laughs> uh, it is rear window through and through. We've said that a million times, but we're going to continue saying that. But inferior. <laughs> yeah, inferior. And unfortunately, it through a bunch of production problems uh the movie's a mess so it's it was kind of it was a tough viewing but um yeah. yeah so let's get into our personal journeys laura go ahead well i think it's interesting that we're covering this as we're sort of hopefully coming out of covid 
because there are a lot of things that overlap with agoraphobia. And I actually read this the week after we were sent home to work from home. So like March, 2020, uh, I, I'm gonna be honest, I had never worked from home in my entire life. So that whole week, I didn't get a lot of work done. I was just kind of like, I can do whatever I want. <laughs> so I read this yeah. book in like two days just because I was just monitoring my emails. <laughs> mm -hmm. So I kind of cozied up with this book and read it. And I wasn't a huge fan the first time I read it. I thought that there were, there were, I had a lot of lingering questions at the end. And I think that's not something that you want at the end of a thriller. I think it's really good for thrillers to keep it tight, keep storylines tight, because for the most part, thrillers aren't believable. You know, you don't walk into the, the genre thinking like you're going to read anything that's completely believable. Mm hmm I just feel like keeping the twists to a minimum is just the best way to have a tight thriller. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying this very well, but no, that's that's a uh, kind of a principle in screenwriting is is exactly that. Say the example given is that if your twist is that the guy is a wizard, don't make the guy a robot wizard. Okay, like he, yeah. he's because yeah. that's just you need to explain more and then that's that's a whole other plot in there yeah. we're running we ran into that while writing our our short film that we're currently mm -hmm. doing of so many we're so focused on shocking the audience with all these twists we end up overwriting and we had like four twists and then you need to explain all those and go back and retroactively change certain things and it just becomes a big mess. I think an easy flaw again especially for thrillers because you need a twist is to end up backfilling and it's it's almost like I guess like filling a bin with water and you kind of start tilting it back and forth and it's like oh you have so much to reveal at the end that you then have to start back writing so you tip the bucket back toward you and then it's like oh there's too much in the beginning i need to simplify it so you like backfill again and i don't know it just like yeah. it ends up being a really washed out storyline mm -hmm. Th that's that's how i felt at the end of this book the twist at the end is so stupid and so aggressively hidden. Mm -hmm. Like the other thing, like think about Gone Girl, how you go back and read it from the beginning and you start picking up hints that Amy isn't who she says she is. Yeah. But in this book, there's literally zero hints that, again, full spoilers, the son who Anna Fox befriends because he purports himself to be this sort of traumatized teenager. Yeah, Ethan. Ethan. He ends up being a sociopath murderer. Yeah. Which like there are no hints. There are no breadcrumbs that he is that. Right. And so for the twist to come and it just be like, "Oh, that was hidden from you the whole time," but like surprise. Right. Like it, it doesn't it's uninteresting. Here, and you're like, "Yeah, here's what okay. I'll say is that I did not see it coming in the movie that Ethan was the killer but as you alluded to the twist has no thematic weight it's yeah. like okay so he's the killer okay so what you know like yeah, they so just what? threw a killer in there yeah. like uh, okay yeah it could have been anyone like, it could have been anyone yeah. I think that's the, that's the annoying thing is like the author tried to put a lot of weight 
behind throwing you off. And it was like, he almost put too much weight behind that. Like he clearly wanted the audience to think that the father had killed the mother. Right. So he put so much weight or Dr. Fox's tenant, David, he also threw a lot of weight behind that guy and kind of made him a little, you know, he has a history with jail and Mm -hmm. violence and, you know. And it's so obvious that he's the red herring. You're talking about Wyatt Russell's character. Yeah. Because they're not going to introduce the killer halfway through the movie. Like, it's going to be a twist at the end. So, obviously, it's not him. Yeah. So, anyway, I don't have to go into too much about the author right now, but the guy's name is A.J. Flynn, but that's a nom de plume. So, his real name is Dan Mallory. A nom de what now? A pen name. I've never heard that word. Oh. Learn something new every day. It's a French phrase. Oh. Nom de plume. Cool. But, so yeah, the real guy's name is Dan Mallory. And he has a really, really, really fucked up past. And the thing that bothers me, so I didn't know that until after I read the book the first time and started Googling a little bit about this. And so the thing that makes me a little bit even more upset at this book, that it became this movie, this Netflix movie that it was even, that it was adapted at all, is it was like, basically, it's just this white guy who wanted so badly to be a crime writer that he failed up. And this guy is a pathological liar. He is, like, in a in extremely gross ways. Like, he, he tells his co-workers that, like, his mom is dying of cancer and then, like, leaves work for two months and then texts those co-workers as his brother hmm. that, like, he's not... He's, like, worried about his brother. It's, like, just weird, creepy stuff. There's a New Yorker expose on him that's just beyond every, anything you've ever learned about someone. It's just so weird. So that also just made me feel gross about the, the book. And mm-hmm. then, of course, you know, it's picked up as an adaptation. And when <laughs> when did the book come out? 2016. Okay. 18. 18. 2018. The book came out in 2018? Yeah. Okay, so that's this was clearly a case where Fox bought the rights to the story in 2016 as it, before it was published. Mm-hmm. So like Rosemary's Baby and a couple other adaptations, the movie went into production like as the book was coming out. Well, so I have a first edition hardcover of the book that I found at the thrift store and the first edition came out with a sticker that said soon to be in major motion picture. Yeah. So yeah, it was picked up almost as soon. Yeah, the rights were purchased. Yeah. Yeah. And we'll get to the whole, notice I said Fox and not Netflix, (laughs) but Netflix ended up with the film that was dumped on there. Yeah. Um, yeah. Are you done with your uh, journey? Yeah, sorry, I went a little long, but yeah. Oh no, nonsense. This is our podcast and we can do talk. We can say what it, we can talk about. It's my podcast, and I can cry if I want to. Yes, which we do frequently. <laughs> um, yeah. So I did not read the book, but I was aware of this story for a while. It's funny how this movie feels like it was cast, shot, and edited in quarantine, but really it was made in 2018. Yeah, it's <laughs> yeah. weird. Yeah. I've been keeping track with this film's progress for the past three years because of the insane talent in front of and behind the camera. We've already said we love Amy Adams, but this this cast, I mean, it is just stacked. So Gary Oldman, who is just chewing the scenery in this movie, he has about five scenes, and they're just the most ridiculous, over-the-top scenes I've ever seen in my life. Such a bummer. Julianne Moore, who 
I've already said I love BU alum, go Terriers. Uh, not Jennifer Jason Lee. Uh, Wyatt Russell, who, who's great. Um, Honestly, probably does the best job out of anyone in this movie. Yeah, MVP for yeah. sure. Uh, yeah, he's great in uh, Falcon and the Winter Soldier, that show on Disney+, Plus, uh, which is just okay, but he's great in it. Brian Tyree Henry, who we, we can't say him. enough about. He really blew up after If Beale Street Could Talk. He is about... a. 11 minutes of screen time in that movie and it's just the most heartbreaking yeah. effective uh, acting. acting you've ever yeah. seen and his character and honestly himself it's not his fault but he's pretty terrible in this it's, movie it's such a it's such a bummer yeah like he just underutilized underwritten probably the dumbest detective ever yeah. uh <laughs> and then okay but also like it, yeah we'll talk about this later yeah and then uh, anthony mackie who's mostly voiceover oh he's also he's falcon in falcon yeah. and the winter soldier i didn't make that connection but yeah so he you barely see him in this movie yeah mo- mostly voiceover so insane cast and then directed by joe wright who Pride, P&P. Yeah, Pride and Prejudice, that movie is insanely directed. Uh, Atonement, also just a feat of directing. And his episode of Black Mirror with Bryce Dallas Howard is also great. Mm. He is just a really amazing director for the most part. And then written by Tracy Letts, who is a playwright and also an actor. Tracy Letts was the newspaper guy in Little Women, mm-hmm. who yeah. Joe sells his stories to. He's also yeah. the dad in Lady Bird. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, two Saoirse Ronan yeah. movies uh, directed by Greta Gerwig. Yeah. So, but he, he got his start being a play actor and then rose to prominence being a playwright. He wrote Killer Joe, which was adapted into a movie with Matthew McConaughey in, in 2011. Great little movie. I definitely recommend that. He's written two of his plays into films. And then this was his first foray into adapting someone else's work. We're not going to count this against him because... Well, uh, here's the thing. I'm going to half count him against him. So he wrote this in 2018 and the movie came into production in 2018 and according to him he says he eventually produced a script that everyone was happy with but then the film was screened for test audiences and test audiences you know what i've never heard a positive story about a film like screening at a test audience Mm -hmm. and then being like everyone liked it and then the movie was just released you always hear of test audiences being the death nail for films Mm -hmm. and this was a case where death knell death knell Oh, death nail. I always thought it was death nail. No. Okay, death nail. Learn, I've, I'm... The knelling of a bell. I'm learning so much. Uh, the pleur de plums and the, the death <laughs> n- nails. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, so it was the death nail. And, yeah, and then the film was rewritten and reshot. And Tracy Letts had nothing to do with those reshoots and rewrites. That's tough, yeah. And he... And Let's is the sole screenwriter credit on this, mm-hmm. but this movie was clearly written by a committee of people. It's even uncredited. Tony Gilroy, who did the reshoots on Rogue One, Star mm-hmm. Wars Rogue One, he came in and did some last-minute rewrites for the movie. And yeah, and Tracy Letts even admits in this interview that I'm referencing from The Hollywood Reporter, he admits that he 
in his original script that he says everyone was happy with, he was over his head writing it. He thought it was going to be easy. Mm. And the quote is basically like, I thought it was going to be easy, and then it turned out to be hard. It's and, because the source material isn't there. Right. You know? And like they'd have to do, they'd have to go bend over in pretzel twists to put any meaning into this. Yeah. So, <laughs> Tracy Lutz. <laughs> yeah. Tony Award winning playwright. His original script was bad, and then screened in front of test audiences. Everyone was confused and hated it. They did last-minute reshoots in 2019. Then it was in the editing room for a year, and it was going to be released in May of 2020. And then, of course, it was delayed again due to COVID. Yeah. But by that point, it's still that Fox was not happy with it. And at the same time, Fox was being bought by Disney. Mm -hmm. Now, Disney, I want to mention this, has two streaming services. They have mm -hmm. Disney Plus and they have Hulu. Mm -hmm. The movie is too adult for Disney Plus. Okay, you understand it. But do you realize how bad your film needs to be that they won't even put it on Hulu. They have to, it's not that like they have one streaming service. They could just bury it on Hulu. Yeah. But but Fox now Disney was so unhappy with this film that after after 3 years of delays they decided to just let Netflix buy it from them. And Netflix is their their whole model is like listen, quantity over quality. We'll buy anything from yeah. anyone. And there are a lot of good stuff on Netflix, Mank, you know, yeah. is one from last year. But at the same time, there is so much trash. Yeah. Disney Fox sold this to Netflix, and it was uh, released in 2021 in May, a full three years after it was slated to come out. Yeah. Released to Yeesh. Universal. Uh, audience dislike. Yeah, audience vitriol. Just, what does it have on Rotten Tomatoes? Did you look that up? I didn't. I'll do that right now. But as I'm looking this up, let's get into some of the analysis between the book and the movie. So what's like a big change or a big similarity? So I think it's really clear what they wrote out because there are two really big differences that I could tell between the book and the movie. The number one difference is that the real Jane Russell, quote unquote, so not Julianne Moore's character, who we find out is the biological mother of Ethan. So stupid. So little, like, the whole the whole movie hinges on the fact of Julianne Moore not telling Amy Adams yeah. her name. Which think back at your life. Have you ever met someone for the first time who just refused to tell yeah. you their name? Yeah. That's never happened. That's, that's not a, that's not a thing people yeah. do. Yeah. <laughs> like and and that's like that's something that again the author tries so hard to create twists and coincidences that you're just like that would just never happen right so again going back to the book and movie comparison dr anna fox has way more interactions with the real jane russell after that first interaction because she starts stalking her because she's like how can this woman be who she says she is when i know for a fact that i met a different woman so she kind of starts stalking her and that starts to get her out of the house a little bit because mm -hmm. she's house ridden and we don't know in the very beginning why she's agoraphobic and why she can't leave her house but she starts going she for example follows her to the end of the corner to a coffee shop and 
Jane Russell starts calling her a lot more, saying, like, I can see you watching me. Like, stop watching me. Yeah. So there's a lot more interaction. And I think there's literally zero interaction in the movie. Like, maybe she meets her once and sees her twice through the window. Like, there's nothing. And the other thing that I think is a major difference is that Anna Fox is a psychotherapist and so when she becomes house-ridden, she actually kind of unofficially practices on some online forums for people who also struggle with agoraphobia. So she has an account where she talks to people, and that's actually how Ethan gains information about her to start gaslighting her. Mm-hmm. And that's actually really key. <laughs> because yeah. that's not in the movie. And so you start to wonder how Ethan has any connection to Anna. Yeah. Like, he knows nothing about her. Right. He's able to gain entrance into her house because he kind of frames his life like he's being abused by his dad. So she gives him a key and says, like, oh, you can always come over here for a safe place. So you know that he has access to her house. But, like, she doesn't share that much about her personal life with him. Well, here's the thing about bad exposition in movies is that they have one interaction and they just list off their credentials yeah. like like they're looking at a baseball player's yeah. you know baseball card yeah. like they're like this is who I am this is what I do this is my interest this is when my house is unlocked right. and and then they <laughs> and they both and it's like do Tracy Letts and AJ Finn know how people talk right people just don't list off their credentials like yeah. they're giving a speech yeah. and so that's how I guess how he gets all the, the info and knows but. right but I think it's so I guess in defense of the book it's smarter to catfish someone because yes. yeah the because Ethan pretends to be an older woman whose husband has died and now has agoraphobia because she's you know she can't leave the house without like her husband yeah. So in that way, and there are a lot of interactions like that. I think there are a few chapters that are dedicated to him catfishing Anna and being like, oh, like, you know, opening up emotionally so that Anna then opens up emotionally. Yeah. Like, that is... That tracks, yeah. Yeah, semi-believable. This is pure speculation, but I think that that's probably where they went with his character in the original cut. It, right. And I think so too. test audiences just weren't sure what was going on yeah. or wasn't explained well that they just, in the reshoots, streamlined his character to just be in the house. Well, and I don't think it tracked well because in the book, there's never any, there's zero explanation as to why Ethan wants to kill Anna Fox. Right. Like, that you just don't understand. You're like, why in the world... Other than the fact that, like, maybe he figured out that she saw the mother be killed. Right, that's what I thought. But, like, but, but he, like, there's no connection between that. He has no evidence that she's seen that. Right, and she has no reason to believe he would kill her anyways. No. Yeah. And then in the very end, like, of course, he has one of those, like, you know, supervillain speeches. That Terrible. happens in the very end of the book, too, which is just so dumb. It is absolutely absurd. A- insane. And and all it is, he, like, he shows up, and he's a completely different person. He's just like, 
I've always wanted to kill. <laughs> and he's just like, I don't know what my thing is yet. I just like being there when it happens. And yeah. I'm like, what? <laughs> yeah, he's like, he doesn't understand what he likes about killing people, but he knows he likes killing people. So now he's targeted Anna. Yeah, like, he's he's looking for his signature. What? And you're like, okay. And then he's, Where is the setup Then he's that? also like, I know you want to kill yourself, so I'm going to stay here so you kill yourself. So that's another thing that doesn't happen in the book. I think that was a shortcut that the movie tries to take, that Anna wants to kill herself, because that's not in the book. Like, she is abusing gotcha. okay. alcohol and, and pills for her her mental struggles, which is, you know, kind of later revealed. It's because her husband and daughter died in a car accident when she was driving. But... Yeah, I think the suicide angle is definitely a shortcut that they tried to take. But I don't know why. I just kind of like to maybe further her, like, depression. Yeah. Character. I, I think so. Uh, that I don't that know. was another thing. So I want to go into the few things that I liked in the movie is sure. that you know something is up with Anthony Mackie's character because you only hear his voice and you just hear her talking and you... You always hear the talking as uh, like narration over the scenes. You never see Amy Adams talking either. Mm -hmm. It's always just, you know. You never oh. see her pick up the phone right, or right. the phone ringing. I think that's kind of a clue that something's yeah. wrong. So something is up and it's very clear from the start, intentionally so, that it's not what it seems. And Amy Adams is an unreliable narrator. And the fact that she was involved in a car crash with her family is also something I, I didn't see coming. I I was under the impression, I thought like sh the whole time she was not in an apartment, she was in a hospital. Mm -hmm. And I thought Anthony Mackie was like a doctor that mm -hmm. who she's talking with. That's not the case. Uh, she's actually in an apartment and Anthony Mackie is dead. That is a twist I didn't see coming. And I thought... I thought was well handled and a good way to show someone experiencing loss and trauma and literally being unable to let go of someone. But then it's like as soon as they reveal, as soon as like those detectives are like, you're yeah. you're dumb, your husband's dead, your yeah. family's dead, what are you talking about? Yeah. It's, then, it's handled very poorly. Yeah, and then she goes on this whole speech like trying to kill herself. I'm like, man, this is, this is kind of super dark and not earned at all yeah. if you're gonna go this route kind of you know make sure you you set down the track so your audience is with you because this is just a complete left turn of like oh she's gonna kill herself right well i'm not sure we only watched the movie once but i'm not i'm gonna ask you if it was clear how the car accident happened because what happens in the book is that she's been having an affair. Mm -hmm. Her husband finds out about it, and they're driving along this winding road. And then the phone rings, and it's the guy that she's been sleeping with, who is also a co-worker. And then she tries to, like, grab the phone, and it falls, and then they drive off a cliff. Was it clear that she was having an affair, and yeah. that's why they were getting separated? Well, it was clear because of the bad exposition, because yeah. Amy Adams is like, I see you're upset, and Anthony Mackie's just like, yes, I can be upset. My wife just slept with my best friend. Yeah. And you're like, who, what? And yeah. like, okay, now we know that she's adulterous, but you probably could have hand handled that written yeah. that a little bit that scene was probably reshot in a day too yeah. like it, well, it was clear to me but so yeah sorry i interrupted you but you were talking about things you liked about the movie yes i think the one thing that they did do well was that there are a few interludes where all you see is the sky with 
snow falling, but it's not clear that it's the sky because clearly the in the accident the car car is, turned and yeah. flipped. So I thought that was actually an interesting clue because I knew what was going on and you didn't. So, but yeah, that was like that was something I think Joe Wright specifically had creative direction on. Yeah. I, like I can see that coming from a director because that obviously wasn't in the book. absolutely in it's all visual. of yeah in all of Joe Wright's films, whether bad or good. The one constant is pretty exceptional cinematography. Mm-hmm. Like the camera is moving in this. It looks great. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a good looking film. It was shot by Bruno Del Bonnell, who he shot Inside Lewin Davis, Amelie, The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. Yeah, he's just an ex- Oh, Big Eyes. Yeah. Is that the one with Christoph Waltz and mm-hmm. Amy Adams. Amy Adams, yeah. Too, yeah. So, but it's kind of a weird movie, but it, well shot. Right. Fun. Exceptional cinematographer. And yeah, Joe Wright's films just, I mean, look great. And they feel, they have a kinetic energy to them. Like mm-hmm. he, Joe Wright clearly spent the time working on the technical craft of this film. Unfortunately, the script having being written by eight different people at the last minute and all these different reshoots is just a mess. Also, the editing clearly is terrible. I mean, there are a bunch of jump cuts that are jarring, not in the intentional way, just mm-hmm. like, wait, where are we? What's... The pacing in this movie is absolute garbage. Pacing is not good. And something that I hate just in general as a rule are, are jump scares. Mm-hmm. Jump scares are cheap. It's just yeah. a. Obviously, I'm gonna jump if there's a loud noise out of nowhere. You don't earn the yeah. the horror from that. Mm-hmm. You gotta really. Films like The Invisible Man or like Get Out <laughs> yeah. or The Invisible Man remake have actual tension and there's a reason for you to be scared in these moments. Yeah. If not, th- there's a ridiculous scene early on where Wyatt Russell's character David goes on the roof to check out that window that yeah. now comes back. Skylight. Yeah, the skylight that comes back at the end. As he comes down the stairs, he stops and Anna Fox is like, David, yeah. David, and then he just pops out and scares her. And you're like, what the hell was that? Yeah. What are we doing here? Yeah. yeah the pay- Oh wait, but I was trying to say stuff I admire about the movie. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think- The cinematography, and some of the direction we said was good. Yeah, I, I guess Amy Adams is good. Wyatt Russell is good. Uh, Julianne Moore is good in her scene, even though it makes no sense for a character to be like, Jane Russell? Who told you I was Jane Russell? And yeah. then it's like, why would you not? Why would you just say, my name is Katie? Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. yeah but uh, that's, that's about it. I mean, I will say this. Even though we are absolutely picking this movie apart this isn't like a half star movie or a zero star movie. If we were to watch this again to analyze it more, that would be fine. I mean, it, it's certainly not above two stars, but you know, it, it, it's not, the, the time went by and it, it was whatever. I mean, there are some things that you can gravitate towards to like unintentionally laugh at, like Gary Oldman's performance. Yeah. There's a line reading where he says, get away from my son, you know, because Anna Fox was just like telling him, like, you're, you're abusing him, you're talking, and she's talking to him, and he says, he's just like, get away from my son. <laughs> and you're like, what the, what? Can't be an actor. <laughs> yeah. And then he just leaves. And that's another thing about this movie. The cops just let Gary Oldman into mm-hmm. her house. And it's like, that's not how it works. If you're accusing someone of murder, 
You don't just let the other party into the house and the detectives themselves didn't even ask permission to come in. Like right. there is a weird, bizarre scene where Amy Adams tries to go outside after she takes forever to call 911 when Julianne Moore is being <laughs> murdered. Yeah, she runs. Well, she's looking for her phone, but right. yeah, the point is it's just... <laughs> And then, yeah, she runs outside with an umbrella, and does she get hit by a car? There's, like, a light that comes, and then all of a sudden it's bright, and then it cuts to her in the apartment with these police officers. Instead of EMTs. Right. Like, why are detectives... No, it's not even police officers. Right. Or EMTs. It's a, it's a fucking detect... NYPD or NYC detective. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's the thing. Yeah, ex- exactly. Cops would be there. Not to. Yeah. I- I've watched enough episodes of Law and Order to know it's like detectives aren't called out to be the first on on the, the scene. scene. Someone's been hit by a car. Yeah. Yeah, and they're just there, and then and then they're the, aggressively there to make sure the gaslighting works. Yeah, and they're just grilling her. This poor woman who's yeah. just like, I saw a murder, and then they're like, No, you didn't. Yeah. And then all of Gary Oldman's just that in the house. Yeah. He just. Gary Oldman just materializes out of nowhere, and they're like, "We believe him. Yeah, you're you're crazy. Yeah, and and, and and she also has like multiple neighbors, and so if she said like I saw my neighbor get murdered, like how would they know who to like, where to go? It's, like what are like? It's I, weird. It's, if I if I were to accuse Laura of murdering someone, they wouldn't just like put us in a room and like have us talk it out. We and would, then be like, but we absolutely side with Danny. Yeah. But like for no reason. Right. Because the script tells us to. So you're crazy. And I, I think that's our point is like not only the author of the book, but also clearly the people who adapted the screenplay are trying so hard to make the mechanics work of like gaslighting that they didn't even think that like oh it might be strange that detectives would show up rather than an ambulance right to take her inside like they didn't even think that that doesn't make sense it was just like we need to gaslight this woman so we need to make everything around her go wrong in order to get her to not see that Ethan's a serial killer. It's just like, that doesn't, it, none of it tracks. Yeah, compare that to Gone Girl, where Amy manipulated the police to hate Nick because Nick was in an adulterous relationship. Yeah. She used... She used what was already going on. Yeah, she used public perception and the way that actual investigations work to wiggle her way to almost get Nick in that movie to be uh, convicted of murder. Yeah. So that's that's the kind of the comparison mm-hmm. here, where you think about these things. You, yeah. you, you don't realize, like, audiences are smarter than this type of movie. Part of it is just their movie was broken, they had bad source material, they tried to do what they could, but ultimately it's uh, a mess that uh, insults your intelligence. Yeah, I'll, I'll give... Dan Mallory, the real name of the author, a little bit of credit. There were three instances where I marked in the book that these were good writing. So I'll, I'll say things that I enjoyed about the book. Let's there hear them. Th- there are three pages, or three sentences. So page three, technically, ch- but chapter one, page one. Anna Fox is describing people that she sees across the street and she's observed and the way she describes one of the women is legs shrink-wrapped in Lululemon. Super smart. I like that. I like that a lot. I like That's that. That's a good piece of description. Yeah. Okay. So, page 18, 
she says, dimples, stipples, stubbles, wrinkles. I need work, like on her face. I think that was kind of a fun little... Who are you, Dr. Seuss? No, I'm yeah. kidding. <laughs> yeah. And then it also starts to expose her as a as addicted to drugs and alcohol. Gotcha. So she's looking for something in her bathroom cabinet, and she says pill bottles stacked atop one another like totem poles. I thought that was interesting. Like, that was a good visual of how, you know, you can have a lot of pill bottles, and they don't even all fit. Mm-hmm. You have to stack them to make them fit. And then my third example, my third and last example, is on page 35. And this is developing her relationship with her now dead husband. And it talks about how they loved watching old black and white movies together and how they'd make lists of movies, which is like us. So I thought that was kind of relatable. And I liked how that was being described. And then she says, we lived in monochrome those nights very cool watching old movies and i was like that's really well written but uh this book is 427 pages long and those are the only three times that i thought good writing stuck out so yeah that's (laughs) more bad than good seems a little thick for a story that uh thin yeah yeah and you know sometimes this happens where it's like there's an interesting idea that could have been a really good flash fiction or short fiction yeah you know piece but to turn it into a book. I'm just, you know, sometimes too, like I try to get into the mindset of an editor because that's what I do a lot of at work. Yeah. And sometimes I'm just like, how did an editor see enough in this book to let it move forward as like a 430 page book? Like, mm-hmm. I don't know. I, don't, I just don't know how that happens, to be honest. Cut the fluff. Yeah, cut the fluff. <laughs> um, yeah, I think a lot of the twists, I mean, I guess to go back to some of the things that I didn't like, a lot of the twists are just really cheap. I noticed the second time that I read this that the evidence that, again, is beyond coincidental Mm -hmm. that Anna Fox comes up with to prove that Jane Russell was not the person who came to her house that first night we meet her. She takes a picture and finds that night Mm -hmm. and finds the reflection of her in a window. Right. So then I was like, a woman in the window. Mm -hmm. It's not talking about Anna Fox. It's talking about Jane Fox's reflection. Uh, Katie. Katie. Katie's reflection in the window. Yeah. I was like, that is just cheap. (laughs) You uncover that and you're just like, come on. Yeah. And what a coincidence. I mean. Yeah. Here's what would really happen. What would really happen is when Julianne Moore came into the house, she would be like, Hey, I'm Katie. Mm-hmm. No, she would say, "Hey, I'm looking for David," because mm-hmm. that's how she hooks up with the house. Is gotcha. She's, she's right, right, right. With David, mm-hmm. so she'd be like, "Hey, does David live here?" Yeah. And then there would be a connection between her and David. And then when Jane Russell, who you think is Jane Russell, goes missing, then Anna Fox would be like, "Oh, like there was a woman who came one night and asked for David. Like, ask David," and he'd be like, "Oh yeah, that's the that's my friend Katie." Like, yeah. <laughs> end of story. And then the second thing what would happen is as soon as she gets murdered, then you would think to be like, oh, I took a picture of that. Like, I took some pictures that night. Why don't I just go back into my phone and look? That discovery would have been real useful about 20 minutes into the movie, not and at the not end. And we're not professional detectives. No. But there are two detectives on the scene, and they don't think to check her phone 
at all. Absolutely just the <laughs> Instead, worst. Instead, they accuse her. There's this one scene where she realizes that an email is sent to her with a picture of her sleeping. The so instead of asking to see her phone to like look at, you know, maybe there's any evidence of her like texting someone or again, maybe the pictures could have revealed something in the beginning of the storyline. They accuse her of taking a picture of herself by herself, creating yeah, like, a new Gmail account so that you, which they go into technical terms about why you can't like source a Gmail account and then emailing her the picture to herself to have some because she needs attention. Can, can so you imagine they go out of their way to gaslight her? Can you imagine going to the police with a piece of evidence that incriminates someone else? And then the police being like, that's your, you did that. You did that. With, with no, absolutely no due process or anything. Just being like, you're. How do we know you did that? Prove it. Yeah. Pro prove you didn't do prove it. it. Prove it did. They like, they bring it. They put up their fists. Like, come on, you won't. You won't. Weak. It is absurd. Um, yeah, and I, I want to talk about the ending, the last 15 minutes, which were uh, completely from start to finish reshot. So the last 15 minutes of the movie was not in the original cut. So let's talk about that right before we do that. Another thing I just want to mention that I liked was Danny Elfman's score. I, I thought it was very reminiscent of Hitchcock, which, you know, again, it's, we, supposed, to be, it's but, supposed to be, but Danny Elfman's score, I was good yeah. it kept me engaged a little bit fun fact he was not the original composer the original composers were our boys <gasps> trent reznor and atticus ross you're right our boys yeah and they originally did the score back in 2018 but quote the film this is from trent reznor quote the film underwent a transformation after some testing audiences yep we know this and the two of us decided to bow out and he further went on to say, there's no animosity on our end, but it's just frustrating when you did that much work and it's gone. They, I think the lesson to pull out of this is like, if you see a ship going down, don't try to put it back together again. Yeah. It's like jump ship and hope that someone can come save yeah, you. Yeah, it, it's not clear. I mean, yeah, that's the thing. You would think once the film was re-edited, Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross would be like, okay, let's redo our score. But the film was changed so much that they're just like, we are out. Like, yeah. we are not doing, you want us to just completely grab it by the roots and just start anew, and this is not the movie that we th that we wanted to be a part of. This is a waste of our time, we're out. And Danny Elfman, <laughs> Danny Elfman, I mean, the legend, I'm surprised they got him. I mean, maybe just by the talent and the director they got him, but yeah. Trent Reznor, Atticus Ross, th anything they touch is just gold. gold yeah. But they, uh, they were out, so yeah, no score by them. Whatever. Okay, the last 15 minutes where all the reveals come in, and it's revealed that Ethan is the murderer. I want to clear some things up. Um, I don't know if you have the answers to this, but so Ethan killed his father's secretary. Oh, yeah, that's not in the book. Got it. So why did they move in, in the book? to where they moved. Is it explained? It's not super explained. If I remember correctly, it's just because Alistair was having an affair with someone in the office. It, gotcha. The depth that Anna goes to figure out that whole thing is, I think, blown out a little bit in the movie. 
because it's not that Ethan had killed someone in the past. Okay. So she she does that whole investigation thing, but then it's just like she kind of is just like, well, he just was transferred. Like that's. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Now in the movie, did you get the impression that Gary Oldman was aware his son had killed someone? Ah, it was confusing. Kind of. Like maybe he suspected. Okay. But it was at his workplace, so like, why would his son have been there? Yeah, that's that's confusing. Next question. So, <laughs> I know it's different in the book because you you had groaned at this. So David is the one who tells Anna that Julianne Moore yeah. is not Jane Russell; she's Katie. So in the in the book, that's different, right? Mm-hmm. How does she find out that she's Katie in the book? I could be misremembering this, but I'm pretty sure Ethan tells her that it's his biological mom during the climax when he's attacking her. That's also a bit muddled about like why she's there and like Gary Oldman is paying her not to be there, but she is anyways and is sleeping (sighs) with David. That's another coincidence that she's sleeping with the person who's next door. Did, had Katie and David met before? No. They had just, like, met randomly in the street and I guess decided to, like, hook up. I don't know. I mean, okay, such a coincidence. It's ironic that the reshoots were in place to clear up the story, but I only have questions. Well, because the other thing, the reason that Katie and David had to be linked, mm-hmm. there was, like, the earring. Right, right. Like Anna right, right, finds right, right. the earring and is like, whose is this? But why would she be, she be suspicious of an earring she knows David is single. So, like, finding well, an earring but is... That, but she thinks that then that means that he killed her. Right, but that, so that's what I'm saying. So, like, that relationship exists to throw Anna off. Right. But then again, again, if you take one step back and say, well, then how did they meet? The, that coincidence is just, like, there to, yeah, to r- create the confusion. <laughs> Right, it's, uh, we've talked about this before, but it's backwards writing. You're trying, in order to come to a conclusion, you retroactively, like, go back and, like, how can these people meet? And it's, like, just coincidence, I guess. Yeah, that's the only answer, yeah. And then, finally, this is not a question, more of a comment. It's just kind of the whole villain speech. We talked about this earlier. I'm the one who killed him, and I'm gonna kill you, and I don't have my thing yet. I don't have my signature yet, but I know it is, like, being there when they die. And then Amy Adams, like, pretends to try to kill herself and then throws the glass at Ethan's head and they have this big fight. Oh, David dies in the movie, which I know he doesn't in the book, correct? Yeah, which is dumb. There's no reason for him to die. And there's no reason. There's almost two villain speeches because for some reason to throw the audience off and make us think that David was the killer the whole time, David gives this weird murderer speech where he's like I knew it was Katie all along yeah. but I had a I had an earlier arrest and so I thought they'd think I was a killer so now I'm gonna like be scary and stomp around your house for a while until I get killed by Ethan. Everyone in this movie <laughs> is so mean. Yeah. They're just so, everyone is just point. like so mean spirited and just hating on Amy Adams for no reason. Yeah, like, poor woman. Like, nobody gives her any sympathy for having lost her husband and daughter, being agoraphobic. Like, no sympathy. Yeah, it is 
really weird. <laughs> then, yeah, the final fight on the roof when it's all raining. So that was completely, again, reshot. That wasn't in the original cut. I don't know if they fought on the roof in the original cut, but all that action was redone. Very poorly edited. You don't really know what's going on. It's hard to understand the choreography. And then out of nowhere, Ethan takes a gardening handrake and stabs her in the face. And listen, I'm not I'm not like a prude. I'm not like anti-violence. I like all that stuff, but it absolutely comes out of nowhere. You're not ready for it at all. It doesn't fit with the movie you're watching. And it's kind of a, like a Jesus Christ moment. Yeah, like, kind of like what you're talking about with you they didn't earn the emotional turns. Yeah. They did not earn the gore turn right there. Like that was it's, like, stuck in her fucking face. Like, it's disgusting. Yeah. It goes right through her cheek, and you see it come out through her mouth. Yeah, and again, I'm not saying that not to put violence in your in your movies. I actually think the opposite is true. I think the real world is violent, and you kind of need to see these images in order to come to terms with, with the harsh reality of life. However, at the same time, your movie, the tone needs to match up. It's called a cultivator tool. Gotcha. Cool. It. Sure. Uh, <laughs> but anyway. Yeah. You when you stab a cultivator tool into someone's face, the movie needs to match that intensity. You yeah. c that can't just come out of nowhere. Yeah. And then yeah, she pushes him on the skylight and then is able to get out of the way as which, he falls through. Which by the way, in the book, I can count at least two, if not three, moments where David's like, you know. That window is about to fall through. If you're not careful, if you don't fix that with that skylight, someone's gonna fall through that skylight. Yeah. It's like, oh, is uh, someone gonna fall through the skylight at, at the end of the book? Yeah. <laughs> and so, then surprise, someone does. Yeah. So it falls through, and then okay, so Ethan's dead, and now very next scene, she's just like, it, some time has passed. No, sorry, I'm I'm forgetting another ridiculous scene where she wakes up in the hospital, and Brian Tyree Henry. Gosh, oh, no. God bless him. So God, God bless the actor. But the speech he gives, he's basically like, I was wrong. You were right. I'm so sorry. Here's your phone. Like, delete any evidence on it that you were suicidal, which, okay, fine. I mean, that doesn't have to do with anything, but I guess he's just being nice. He's just like, yeah, I'd like be like to be the first one to apologize and then it's like yeah dude like if you had just done your job you wouldn't have to do this whole speech <laughs> and then the very next scene i guess she's just overcame her agoraphobia and then she leaves which that's the most upsetting part of the movie to me almost <laughs> which i understand the metaphorical point of the movie that she's moving past her trauma so now she can leave but it gets to the question of like, okay, how was she able to get to this yeah. point? She, okay, so she killed Ethan, so now she can grow past her trauma? Ethan I, had nothing to do with her trauma. Right. Like, he wasn't a manifestation of her trauma, which would have been interesting. Right. If the story had been something connecting to her family, maybe. Right, and she doesn't, you never see a scene where she forgives herself for reaching nope. for her phone and crashing the car, which killed her family, so. Nope. None of that is processed. She stops seeing her psychotherapist within the first 10 minutes of the oh, movie. Oh, oh, I, I forgot to say this. Her psychotherapist is Tracy Letts, the, right. the writer. Yeah. yeah. So he is a small. But he, he pops in and out. Right, And right. then just never comes back. So it's like, did she stop doing therapy? Like... Right. How in the world did she get over her agoraphobia? Yeah. 
Oh, I'm I'm going back to Mayor of Easttown. There, I, I'm not spoiling anything, but there are certain characters who can't do something at the beginning of the series, and at the end, through what they've gone through, it informs what they can do after that. Well, I'm being I'm being so vague here, but I'm saying that actions need to lead to consequences that can have characters grow in some way. Well, I'm going to reference another Amazon Prime original Fleabag yeah same thing and I I won't give anything away even though it's an older show I went in with no spoilers and it really blew me away it's Mm -hmm. all about processing trauma but the main character has a reason for the strange behavior that you don't understand as an audience member until you do right that's earned yeah and the family is earned. The emotional thing that happens, the emotional thing that she leaves behind, it's all there. Yeah. But this, you just can't go from A to B and then sort of hearken your movie as something to point to like, oh, we value mental health. Or like we were trying to make a statement about like processing trauma. You can't do that. Yeah, the message of the movie is that <laughs> in order to get over the grief of your dead daughter and husband, you need to kill a serial killer. <laughs> Yeah. And that's... <laughs> that coincidentally, coincidentally, lives across the street. <laughs> right. So I mean, like, good, good on you, Anna Fox, for you know stopping a bad guy. But what does that mean for you? I guess we'll never know because <laughs> it's not in the book either. And apparently. With that... <laughs> and with that, we clean our hands. We're probably never going to think about this movie again. Uh, like I said, it's not. It, it is a train wreck, but it's. It's a beautiful train wreck. It's very unintentionally funny. There are some good elements like the cinematography and score and Amy Adams' performance. But, yeah, people will forget about it. No one will talk about this movie in a year, ever. <laughs> ever. People aren't talking about it. We're the only people talking about it right now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, uh, do the, you ever find out the Rotten Tomatoes score? Oh, Did yes. That? Yes, yes, yes. So the Rotten Tomatoes score, the critic score, is 26%. Now, the real, mm-hmm. I think... The actual, the important score to look for on Rotten Tomatoes is the audience score because mm-hmm. I, I follow critics, but just for like the regular person who just wants to, you know, know how people are perceiving a movie, whether or not to watch a movie. Yeah, like, like yeah. yeah, just go to the audience score, and the audience score is thirty-four percent, which audiences usually are much more positive than critics because mm-hmm. that's just how it is. Mm-hmm. But yeah, thirty-four percent is not great. Not uh, a little higher than I thought it'd be, but yeah. yeah. It's just, you know, it, it's it's just trash. I mean, it's it's a disaster. It's not offensive at all. The time went by, it's fine. But my final rating on the movie is a star and a half, 1.5 out of four. Not offensive, but just bad. And yeah, yeah I would forgettable. Go, I would get one. I would give it a one. Yeah. Forgettable. I, I just want to tag the very end. I, again, I'll post the article, the expose that goes into Dan Mallory, a.k.a. AJ Finn, and his backstory, because it's insane. Like, this guy is a bad actor, and meaning, like, a bad person. Yeah, yeah. Uh, just very strange. He's been given another book deal. Uh, who knows when it's going to come out or if it will ever get picked up, because... His backstory has been exposed at this point. He's a pathological liar. Very similar to a show that we talked about during our Watchmen episode, Search Party. He is very similar to Elliot. 
And oh, without yeah. giving too many spoilers away for the, that show, because it's still going, I don't want to give anything away. There's one character who just isn't who he seems. and He just lies about just lies, everything. Yeah, 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 about who he is, his background, and all this stuff. And that is who Dan Mallory is. Like, he, he's lied about working for, like, Oxford Publishing, Scribner's, like, all of these massive publishers. And then, like, he'll, he'll apply to a job, and they'll call up his references like any sane employer would do. And they're yeah. like... This guy was like an intern here. Yeah. <laughs> and his his CV will say like editor in chief at Scribner's and they're like no. Like yep. <laughs> So anyway, it's just, it, it is a really interesting story to see how like so many people can just fail up in this way. Got to fake it to make it, am I right? <laughs> Legitimately his entire <laughs> life is faked. Even his name is faked, which I think is hilarious. So, yeah, read the article if you're interested. Uh, I'll post it on our, our Facebook and Instagram pages, so you can have a little background into this little fuck. <laughs> yeah. It's just to clarify, you didn't like the book. Thanks for listening to Film is Lit. Uh, please rate and review. Subscribe if you haven't already. No pressure. Like we said, we don't do this to make money. We do this because we... <laughs> genuinely like it uh it's just fun for us so we have no plans on getting sponsors because why why waste your time you're just gonna skip through the ads anyways that's what we do (laughs) (laughs) all right well yeah thanks for listening we'll be back next week with another great episode and yeah we'll see you on the next one